0: a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet, finance smarter what if ai could help your business deliver mission critical outcomes with speed with ibm consulting your business can design build and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at IBM.com/consulting. IBM, let's create.
1: The thing I was struck by is the infinite amount of decisions you make to bring an infant to adulthood from putting a bandaid on their skin to getting them to brush their teeth to like hold their hand before they step in front of a car on the busy street like there's so many decisions that we humans and parents do to preserve just the life and then the, then the mind It's to bring somebody to adulthood there's so many decisions <laughs> that's what I learned that was matt walsh
2: i'm sam fricoso and this is talk easy welcome to the show Today on the show is Matt Walsh, and I have a feeling that he has made you laugh, uh, whether on screen or in the writing off screen, for about two, three decades now. He's one of the original founders of UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade, and uh, then became a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He is currently in the hit program Veep. He's been in about a thousand other uh, wonderful things in between those. But uh, his most latest project is called Under the Eiffel Tower. It's about a man who has a midlife crisis and embarks on a journey across the French countryside. Here's a bit from the trailer.
1: Hey, buddy. Yeah? I think you should come with us two weeks in France. What do you think? You know how much Rosalind adores you? Plus, she wouldn't have to be stuck alone with her parents. Can we just leave them behind and live a life of ease, just the two of us? Would you do me the honor of being my wife? What? What in the
2: hell? I'm 26 years old. You're, you're 50? You're a very pathetic
1: unemployed. Just a sad, sad
0: person. Uh, <laughs> Cheer up, man. The most beautiful women in the world live in southern France. Bonjour. Do you want some?
2: It's a pretty fun movie. It's out in theaters now uh, across the country. It's also currently available on VOD, uh, so be sure to check it out. One of the great joys of doing the show is having people on from Chicago. And uh, I always feel there is some inherent deep-seated connection with those who come from the city that I was born and raised in. Uh, so, yeah, it was a great joy to have him on the show. He is a-, a landmark in contemporary comedy. And I think a whole bunch of the shows that we like right now uh, and the comedians that we like right now could not and would not have existed without uh, Matt and his work, especially uh, in the early days of UCB. So, I hope you enjoy the episode, and without further ado, here is Matt Walsh. I wanted to go back. Uh, you're born in 64 in Chicago. Yeah. You are the middle child of, of seven kids, yes. right? Um, Where in Chicago did you live? Two places. Parents divorced early. Okay. Uh, South Side. Whereabouts? Near Midway Airport on oh, 63rd. Sure. Which one? 63rd? 63rd in? in Normandy. Copy. Yeah. And copy. <laughs> and um, I lived in the suburbs, a suburb what called Burridge.
1: <gasps> Burridge yeah there's no my mom and sister lived in willowbrook i know where that is and uh currently live in lagrange i know exactly where that is and my sister lived uh in uh Ridge, right on madison Mm and plainfield
2: yeah i know exactly where that is Yeah. yeah yeah um so let's go back for a second you being the middle of seven when you look back on this now what are your sort of memories of being a young? kid within that family unit uh,
1: a memory of my childhood uh in the midst of uh a large number of siblings are generally very happy memories just like i would think of thanksgivings are really awesome i would think of like my brother's beating up on me as kid like i tended to get not beat up but punched were you the one who was getting hit yeah so then i had to probably be funny to escape it and then i was just low man on the totem pole it's like animal behavior you were
2: low man but you were a middle kid
1: middle kid and then unfortunately there were moments where i would smack my sister and my mom was not happy really yeah just because you've had to i'm bigger than her to, to be yeah, up i'm bigger than her and i'm older mm. and boys shouldn't hit girls that's a good lesson yeah <laughs> but it was a long it was like 50 years ago probably 47
2: Look, look, you know I think everyone below the age of 10 has excuses For the things yeah, they did That's true um, What were your parents like?
1: Mom, very good worker Lovely gal, very practical She's
2: very funny, I've heard her talk before
1: You've heard her talk? Uh-huh Where'd you hear her talk?
2: Matt, this is a show where I do research This is not like I'm dicking around this is, this is, I'm not Mark Maron
1: over here <laughs> Can you think of uh uh a show where you heard her talk. Yeah, well, it's called off camera with Sam. Oh does. yeah, I roped her into that interview. Um, she has a very. It's the first time she ever got on camera. She would never do it. She's not really a. My father was a big stage hog. Basically, loved loved to be on a <laughs> microphone. Very funny guy, or not necessarily funny, but like laughed at his own jokes and was very funny. Like had had very funny times. Later in life, I realized how funny she is because she's rather blunt and I think I perhaps have some of her bluntness. do you? Yeah she just says it how she sees it like that time and, s- and sometimes it's not uh, there was a, I think it was at the, the daily show and my mother was in the audience and they had warm-up comedy to prime the audience and then he was like asking people questions and my mom was there because I was on the show and she's like I'm from Chicago like he interviewed her or whatever talked to her. So she felt very engaged in part of the show. And then John Stewart came out, started the show, did his monologue. And then like one of his jokes didn't land. And my mom was like, oh, that was a bomb. <laughs> like, said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and my girlfriend at the time was sitting next to her. And she's like, don't. don't
2: oh, see. no. It's kind of like. Did he give her a look?
1: I think it was a little awkward. I don't think it was super loud. But I think it was like,
2: yeah. So she says what she's going to say. Yes. And she was like that when you were a kid.
1: Yes. She was very busy with uh
2: seven kids
1: seven kids kitchen like just cranking out like meals batches of six batches of seven just time. think about
2: the pure production numbers she was had she had to put up
1: my favorite memory about my uh sort of multiplicity or growing up in a large family being one of those kids is that uh, on Sunday nights we would make a uh, assembly line and we would make like hundred sandwiches, I'm not kidding, for the week. Because there were seven kids, mm. and the boys would eat two sandwiches for lunch. Right. And they were growing crazy fast. And seven kids. So it would be like you would do bread, somebody would do mustard, it might be bologna, it might be ham, it might be cheese, and then you put it, and then somebody bagged it, and then you threw them in the freezer, and then everybody in the morning, you could just pull your... Sam- peanut butter and jelly would be the other option, and you just freeze them and cut them. And that was quintessential Audrey Walsh. Hmm. Very much organized and uh, ahead of it. Like, she's the kind of woman who goes, I can't talk. I have to go buy the pumpkin pie filling because I'm making the pumpkin pie on Thursday. Mm. But this is like Monday night. Right. She's like, lives, Three days lives for that. Lives for that stuff because her her identity in many ways and also her talents, she's really good at it. They're involved with how she makes and Yeah, creates. keeps. uh I guess keeps a home or took care of her family. Yeah. For many years in her life, most the, of the years. The her way
2: life. you've described this household is something that's sort of like idyllic and and like quintessentially <laughs> American.
1: Very American. It's not idyllic. There were trouble. You know, there were problems. Uh, probably kept from like the kids. Like my dad would. They would. My mom and dad would argue at night, but I don't think it was ever anything bad.
0: you It was more sounds. like my
1: dad. My I think like my dad <clears throat> was a salesman, and he like drank those guys went out and drank he never drank at home but they would like go out thursday night like don draper style and mm. come home and probably shouldn't have been driving he was from that era Right. and so i'm sure there were problems around that is my guess but they stayed together their whole life and my favorite story about my mother is he's doing his my father had a, a wonderful he had like health crises for the last 10 15 years of his life but he had a really good like six-year chunk at the end where he was he's since passed. We had great health, and he was uh, just really in it. Active. Active. And they were making his, as he was passing, it was was obvious he wasn't going to last. He was making his will and testament, and for his church service, when he was going to be buried or celebrated, uh, he wanted this one song, uh, Raise You Up on Eagle's Wings. And my mom's, like, taking notes because she's helping him do it. And he's like, and I want them for the exit or whatever they call it, play... uh, We'll, he will raise you up on Eagle's wings. And my mom's like, oh, no, we're not playing that song. No way. That is too <laughs> sad. That is so sad. People are already going to be sad. I don't want it to be, like, super sad. Pick something else. <laughs>
2: Sorry. Um, to your, a dying man. Your last wish. I, I just don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I got to get the pumpkin spice. I don't really have time to think about your song. And, yeah. And she's she's saying no to the artistic choice. Of even having that sad of a song.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she's a very sweet person too. I mean I, she's very funny and sweet. Yeah. She's a character. Did the song play? No, it played the other one. I forgot what she other song was. Mm-hmm. But it, it did not fly. Eagle's Wings was not the uh the song that went. Did you feel
2: particularly um you may laugh at this question, but like seen and heard, given that there was uh a half dozen
1: plus in your family did i feel particularly seen or heard given that there were six seven people did you feel
2: like at times you got lost in the shuffle
1: oh sure i I guess the there was one time where they literally i was the last one at the rest stop and they took off they left the kid (laughs) and drove with like at that time there were probably only six kids not seven five kids maybe but it was like michigan to indiana or somewhere and it was a couple stops and it wasn't but it was like oh yeah that's a big family when you like <laughs> pull out and there's like miss one, one of them. Kid.
2: yeah you were in the bathroom stalls i believe
1: so. i came yeah or i was last in line and then i came out and they were gone mm. so did you have any inclination at that age to perform or to do comedy i think the survival mechanism which i was saying when my brother sort of but, you know, you're the low man. You get beat up a little bit. Uh, probably too comedy or distract in its instance. But I guess I always... So that was sort of part of it. And I also feel like I always understood or relished the structure of jokes. Like when people would tell jokes, I would remember them. Or there was an old guy in our neighborhood who would walk his dog and we would call him jokes because you, you could walk with him and he would tell you jokes. Like basically Dixie Riddle cups. Hmm. And So... Uh, I remember that, and I remember thinking, like, "Oh cool, and then I remember Dixie Riddle Cups, like these things that so the things that had meaning to me or the things that I always liked were were comedy, some of my earliest things that I remember liking, like I liked cars as a little like you play with cars, of and, course, uh, build things and and definitely like sports my whole life, but I think my interests were comedy, and I do have a very wonderful memory of like in in the Back room of a house on Trumbull, which is on the south side of Chicago, Mm -hmm. 103rd and Kedzie. Mm -hmm, I know where that is. Uh, I remember being up late on W, the free channel 32, which is whatever. (laughs) Might be the Hispanic channel now in Chicago. I don't even know. WFLD, and they were playing Marx Brothers movies, and I remember my dad like laughing at them, and I remember like having like just very curious about like, oh, he's and my mom. They're very, like, upbeat and happy right now. And this is, like, this thing that makes them really happy. So it also had that value, too. Because you, when you have a family where a lot of work has to get done, like 100 sandwiches, you don't get a lot of one-on-one time with mom and dad. So when mm. these things, like, oh, how can I connect with them or get them to notice me, I think unconsciously you see that. And you're like, oh, this, is, this makes them happy. So it made me happy to, like, maybe try to make them laugh. Right. Those moments stick out. Yeah, that's a very, like... Linoleum tile, back stairs, down to the back door. Very visual memory. Mm-hmm. On the television that I probably watched, oh, God, I saw the moon first moon landing. I'm that old. I was like five. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel old? That makes me feel old, yeah. Because I remember my mom would iron on an ironing board. And then in the they had the pop bottle mm-hmm. soda for those of you who didn't grow up in Chicago. And they would put nail holes and then hammer the lid back on. And then it'd be like, that's how they ironed clothing? Uh-huh. They didn't even have spray bottles. Really taking yeah. a lot of time. So another specific memory to look, that. Look, we're in background. advanced
2: times these days.
1: Yeah. We have disposable plastic things that can do that.
2: Yeah. And look, and the things we're doing now are just sort of slowly rotting at the earth. So it's, you know, it's progress in its own way. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, more bleak than I intended. Maybe it was actually just as bleak as I intended.
1: Yeah. The, uh. Super summer that's coming to Los Angeles. Is that happening this summer? No, they say that the way the planet warms, L.A. will have like five seasons. There'll be a super summer.
2: Mm-hmm. That sounds There's terrible. Penetrating heat that lingers. This is a question I hope it doesn't make you feel old. What a great Uh-oh. preface. Uh-oh. Um, um, you, you as a teenager in the 70s, so you're know you're 13, 14, and about 77, 78 I'm not good yeah. at math, but that's about yeah, right. Yeah,
1: something like that. Um,
2: what do you remember about being a teenager in the late 70s? It's, it's an interesting time in America. Uh, I think
1: I had like a leisure suit. I remember wearing like a lime green Sears leisure, <laughs> leisure suit, like textured polyester and solid lime sherbet green, both pants and coat, and then a big lapel shirt, and I had high... I remember like wearing my first pair of high heel boots that I thought were so cool. It's a good look. Yeah, they were chunky heeled. I don't know what they're even called, but so I remember some of the fashion. I remember like dances where they played Aerosmith. Some at the church, some at the school. What else do I remember about the seventies? Were you it's funny, Billy Joel? Was I funny? I think I was. I think we moved to a school, and uh, uh, we went from Chicago to. Downers Grove and then to Darien Westmont Mm -hmm. and when you moved to Darien Westmont it was like going from like my it was mid-season 7th grade and so I think I was very self-conscious or peer pressure so I remember going into the school and being really like scared and somehow the first thing that somebody liked about me was being funny and it it helped me like relax (laughs) probably stuff like that do you think it came naturally to you? yeah Perhaps
2: I think uh, people have asked you about Being funny And comedy In pretty much every interview I read And heard of, of yours Okay And Is there a part of you On the other side of this Where you have made a career out of it Where you feel fatigued By questions that try to Explain Or dissect Where and when you became funny
1: no, if it's a specific detail that I find interesting, I don't mind answering the question. <laughs> in a general way, like, questions that I would be, like, fatigued by are like, so do my job for me. Like right. when you're in an interview. But if it's a good conversation and it's a fair question, I don't mind it. Mm. Well, towards the end of high school, I know you are starting to do some comedy,
2: right? It's something with is your school paper or it's some... Something I had be... a uh,
1: variety show. Right. And there's a kid who's a year younger than me, not a kid anymore. Uh, I think his name's Tyler Bates. He was also in the, and he's like an amazing composer. So from that show where I first performed like my senior year and we did sketches, it was very SNL, unconsciously imitating SNL. Mm-hmm. The next day, people were like, that was like the first time I performed. And like the, the drug of like, oh, we wrote something and it's funny. That's where it really hit me. Did you have that immediate feedback? Yeah. It was a room filled with like the whole school, like 800 people or something. Holy cow. Yeah, it's like a big, our school auditorium and the variety show is the big deal at the school. How did they let you do that? 600 maybe, maybe not like 800. The principal maybe. was like, yeah, go ahead. Well, it was a tradition. Every school, maybe we just went farther or something. Like we were idiots and we just like, we made fun of teachers and. Miss Baker was the woman who ran the show. She was the theater there were two theater people, uh Pam Baker and Richard Doherty and uh she directed the show so she allowed it, I guess she liked us. And it wasn't anything scandalous really. I don't think it was whatever. But I remember one teacher got super upset, Miss Frickty. <laughs> super upset, like just like as we went you after her to this still. Well, <laughs> I don't know. You got me conjuring up images of the 70s, so that would have been 79, Miss Frickty. I love that. What
2: was her problem with it?
1: We portrayed her as a psychotic person. Oh. And a crazy person, mm-hmm. which she kind of was.
2: I don't think she liked that. People generally don't love it when
1: they're depicted in that kind of life. Yeah, and it's also, I don't know. I think I had a history with Ms. Frickte too. I was not uh, necessarily a great student. I was trouble. I made mm. a little trouble. Uh, at 18,
2: did you want to
1: go to SNL? No. I was going into college to. F if I know. I think I just wanted to start psychology? college. Well, I didn't know psychology yet. I got in there and it just did. Unfortunately, I had a friend who was like in May of. My senior year in college. He's like, where are you going to college? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, you should apply. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, I sort of procrastinated. I hadn't have a plan. My parents didn't pressure me. They were... My older brothers had gone to, like, junior college first, so maybe they assumed I would just go to a junior college. Mm-hmm. I applied to Northern last minute. Got in, like, last-minute housing. Like, I didn't stay in the regular dorms. stayed in the private dorms, which were actually nicer, so it worked out better. <laughs> me and my buddy Steve, he was, like, a weekend kid. He would drive home and work his restaurant job. Mm. Uh, and so... That's my freshman year. I don't know what the question was. Well, you said unfortunately in some in some part of it,
2: which I was confused by. Oh, you got me on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. What so, was the question? Can well, you remember the, the the, Yeah, the original question was, at 18, did you want to go to SNL? Was that, was that part of the equation? Oh,
1: this is all lead up to, so I was going to be a business major. I think I thought I was going to be a business major, and maybe because Steve was a business major, like truly – didn't know what I was doing Right So that my entrance into it Was to characterize my First year of college Like I didn't know what I was doing But I knew I should probably Go to college mm-hmm. so.
2: Were you a kind of Planning kid Did you Never. have that Instinct in you Never No.
1: You were just like I'm gonna just go with it For better or worse Usually But I I mean I can make plans I've built You know Projects and things Yeah I know you've built I can cook Plenty I can follow a plan well But my lifestyle is more Trusting Sort of A little bit
2: were you searching for uh, a path at northern because i know eventually you get a psychology degree there were you searching for what you
1: wanted to do at that age yeah absolutely so i think like i read a lot i did enjoy school like i liked you know whatever courses i had a great planetary science course where this hippie teacher hank hoove would like talk about life and the earth and the world and also (laughs) try to cram physics in your head that was the harder part of the course but he was. It was a great course and some good English teachers. I really liked English. So then I thought I was going to be an English. I liked writing. I liked, I've always liked creative writing, and I got, you know, I was. I received reinforcement for that as a boy, and then in high school, I always seemed to do well in creative writing. And so I was attracted to writing as well in mm. some way. Or I don't know if it was teaching. And then junior year, I went to Europe for a year just mm-hmm. to get away. And so that was really immersing myself in art history and European civilization. And I picked up a language, German. So I was really like rounding out my like sort of Bachelor of Arts or liberal arts. I was getting great and I I did skiing and hiking. I went to Turkey for a month, saw, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was an incredible time of my life. I read
2: that you did that for that one year. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that I wonder what you're like at that age you're what 22 you know 21 22 yeah say 21 which is a crazy time and a good time to be traveling
1: yeah yeah getting on trains and going all over the world seeing great art uh meeting people and eating bread like in a closed out church or something with wine from like two australian people and three girls from canada and you're just like having your own little burning man. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was yeah. really great. It was really great. And then reading, always like trying to bring a good book or two to read. So, But I, I think travel was junior year. Then senior year, I think I knew I was going to do psychology because I'm like, I didn't want to do business. And so I started to do psychology and I thought I was going to be a psychologist. And then, Where I, did that come from? I always liked it. I think I'd taken some courses in college and of the courses I had taken for electives I think psychology I had one or two and I always liked it I'm like oh that's fascinating like it was just a general interest you were fascinated in how people arrived at the thing the study of the breakdown of human behavior the pathologies uh, the ways that they discovered brain centers like the old-timey like medicine of it all Mm -hmm. the, the era of the Freudian the sort of Revolution of the developmental psychologist, like just the fun pop psychology stuff, like the plane of glass where Piaget would have children walk, and if they could see through, so object object constancy. (laughs) You liked all that behavior modification, yeah. It was really fascinating stuff. And then I did a thesis, and then so my last year of college, I discovered improv. My friend Steve, who was my freshman roommate, had since gotten married, had a kid, left college. Was going to college back home. Doing business. Doing business, being a grown-up, buying a home, like really just focused and doing great. Uh, he's like, I saw the show at Second City, You Should Take Classes. I'm like, oh, my God, really? Because I'd seen them tour a couple of times. And he's like, they teach classes? He's like, yeah, you'd be great at it, or you'd be good at it. I'm like, okay, I will. And so he inspired me to take classes. So while I was writing my second in my second senior year, I was writing a thesis in psychology and finishing out my psych degree I started improv, and I would drive in once a week and come back, and I was really bitten by that. That really was like, oh. But no concept of how I could make a living at it. Still, like, just loving something and doing it. And then finished my psych degree, got a job at Northwestern, worked on an adolescent psych floor, which is a whole huge unpacking in itself. Uh, And then uh, started to do sketches with a group that i had moved in with from this year of course training mm-hmm. there were five dudes in a three-bedroom apartment in chicago figuring out how they were going to get famous or how they were going to get on television is that what you guys are doing i think so i think everybody when they start is like how do i make a living and then the the, the models at that time i think were you're emulating like oh there's snl and then kids in the hall was breaking or Python would do stuff, so we would make our own videos and do live shows at this club called the Roxy, and these are pre-UCB guys. This is a guy, Kevin Urvick and Tony Boswell, and Ed Furman, really funny dude, Ed Furman. Kevin Urvick, super funny. Okay, Keith Srotowski, stand-up. He was a stand-up.
2: The five of you are there in Chicago, and I've heard you talk about these memories of performing at the, the bottom of a Thai restaurant mm-hmm. And uh, sort of acting rambunctious and giving Well, this fears. is like,
1: this group I just listed was my first sketch group. After that, in the middle of my Northwestern trip, I knew I was ha- I was hating my job. It was very depressing. I went back to Europe for another walkabout. And it's there that I round just... Round two. Round two. Vision quest. <laughs> who, who am I? You know, Ethan Hawke in a film, trying to think he's a poet, writing things down, yes. envisioning... The person I wanted to you're be. You're just like Ethan Hawke. My eat, my eat, pray, love. Three months in Europe. Did you find Julie Europe. Delpy? I did not see her, and uh, or an equivalent. Oh, there was a couple of gals, very lovely gals. Yes. Yeah. But uh that's whatever. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: of course. I like how of you course. stumbled
2: on something that was honest, and then you're like, "Well, you know, I just met this guy." I
1: have not been dishonest this whole interview. No,
2: <laughs> I know. No, but you're sharing things um, that you're yes. comfortable sharing.
1: Correct.
2: So, uh, but back to away from the Delphi lookalikes in Europe, and back to Chicago, this memory that you've shared that I want to get into is performing at Thai restaurants, performing at these sort of ramshackle, beaten down places, and like giving out beers to the audience. And really, that to me seems like the
1: time when you really were coming into your own voice. Whatever that. This means. is the post. Vision Quest. So coming out of Europe for four months yeah. or three months, traveling on trains, going, seeing everything, like going to Africa. I got to go to, like, Tunisia and Marrakesh, all that stuff. That was, it was crazy good, crazy travel. How did you afford all that? It's pretty cheap. You just live out of a backpack, and you buy, like, a, a brick of cheese and some bread and water and oranges, and and then you kind of map out your, your, your travel. You buy your year rail, and you can travel anywhere for, like, 60 days or 90 days whatever it is and you got your passport and you got they didn't even have atm cards back then you just had these traveler checks that you wore on you and you could get more if you went to the american express office huh and then at the end of it i did need money so i did do jobs i would wash dishes at like a pension in normandy so like they had these bed and breakfasts very european and i'm like i could and the lady didn't even she owned it and it was a sort of a biggish place and i'm like i'll work and she's like okay you take but she spoke french she kind of taught me how to cook. So I I was there for two weeks just like making a little cash or getting some free bed and breakfast and doing day trips to the beaches of Normandy. And that's where I learned to cook. Mm -hmm. And that's also like where I was with these people who were like Australians in the way that Europeans, and one was a German family, one was English, communing at night at this bed and breakfast. And they were saying that, uh, this one guy was saying, he's like, mark my words when the... When Eric Honecker dies, who was the chancellor of Eastern Germany at the time, still communist. He's like, when he dies, that wall will come down. And they're like, get out of here. And he's like, no, because when the old, the children don't have the same prejudices as their parents. They're not the World War II kids or whatever. Hmm. And like a month or two later, that fucking wall came down. (laughs) And I remember that conversation in this European pen breakfast. From a guy who says it's going to happen. Yeah. And everyone thinking, no way. Yeah. So that was part of my vision quest, just being around that kind of stuff. And then when I got back, I was very focused about comedy. What do you miss about the early days of
2: doing that comedy in
1: Chicago? What do I miss? Do I miss like being younger and physically like fearless? Sure. I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. Sure. So sure. The youth of it all. The yeah, I mean, good memories.
2: I, I only bring that up because uh, you are still doing uh improv now I am actively and mm-hmm. and, and it's just different now though because you, and I've heard you talk about this you are someone who goes on stage and you are like applauded and you were looked at as someone who really created this thing and you did but I've heard you say that it's it it's not the same as it once was it didn't it doesn't have as much Maybe there's less risk now. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. Is that is that fair?
1: Well, certainly in the venues that I perform, I've I've set up a very comfortable, like I do a free show on Sundays and oftentimes we give away a gift at the top. So I feel completely entitled to be self-indulgent yeah. <laughs> and like not stress about any sort of delivering to the audience in the best way. You've you
2: also like, mastered this craft.
1: I probably have, yeah, probably. But I also feel the same way that most improvisers do, which is, you just want to do something different. You don't want to fall into that same. You want to have some like better discovery, or you want to like commit a little harder some night. You know, it's just like that gameness of it—that sort of drive that you have to. I don't know. For me, it's for me, it's truly about trying to chase some different scene. In a in a weird way, something you haven't done, yeah, truthfully, and I don't think that you ever do, but I think that's part of the appeal.
2: That's the pursuit, I think. When when you and Matt Besser and Amy Poehler create UCB, you know, in New York, uh, in the late
1: '90s, we still teach classes. By the way, anybody listening, please <laughs> please take classes at the <laughs> at the Kingdom yeah, of UCB a, Improv.
2: A, yeah, UCB is really hurting. I think we need to plug the classes. Um, did it feel like you had stumbled upon something that was special at that time?
1: When you say that time, what time near you, late nineties, 1997, 97, we didn't have a theater yet. Ninety eight. We opened a theater, Okay, had a show no, on comedy central. And then, uh, it was a clubhouse. The theater was a strip club that we hammered out and built a club, a theater club for our friends and ourselves so we could teach classes and keep it afloat, pay the rent. And then I ended up finding an apartment above it, which was crazy. But in New York, I had a floor-through apartment, Mm. and I had a dog, and I could go on the roof with the dog. The dog could go to the bathroom on the roof. It was pretty great. That's pretty good. Yeah. Did it feel like it was going to do well? I think it operated under the guise of, or the goal of paying the rent, keeping the ticket prices low. And classes would sort of keep it afloat and it did work it did like slowly build classes and it did build shows and then the shows were like it was a very rundown theater which eventually got shut down but it got really folded into the alt comedy uh wave that was sort of already happening in new york and then it was a cool place because we were now friends with really funny people who would do shows at the theater so then it was like really neat to see this dingy theater that didn't exist and it wasn't really great because you would walk through the stages here you'd walk through and people could like so they were walking through the stage wall in a very like lit way sometimes it was but it was very cool to be there and people uh, packed it and it was sort of uh you know early fans were excited because it was they could get in early and stuff Mm. and there was like there was really like tina and rachel were doing a show there at the time or soon thereafter and Todd Berry was doing a show and Richter would come by and it was like, if you're a comedy person, like you were seeing, a comedy fan, you were seeing some really talented people. Janine, Janine would come through or blah, blah, blah. I think uh, people listening wish they could go back to that time and and
2: experience that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and for us, it was so hectic because we were like producing our own TV show, we were editing our own TV show, we were writing our own TV show, and we were acting in our own TV show. So we were doing like season of comedy and then we would do two shows on sunday nights for of Cat, and then we would tape it and then we'd use some of that material to write the next season and Mm. very 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 productive intense time i have a very logical pragmatic question which is
2: at some point it has to become or it does become a business right okay is that is that fair
1: yeah i think the minute you have a lease it's a business yeah um, and it's not a charity. It's not we don't apply for grants. Like the the way theaters either operate, they really have either have wealthy endowments, rich people who pay their season pass. Yes. Or you, can apply, yeah, or you can apply to grants and the government can give you money every year, but you have to apply for those grants and you can't always count on them. Or you can just like get a shoebox and charge five bucks a show. And that's what we did.
2: Mm. Was uh, there any stress around turning this very fun thing between a group of friends and turning it into a business that had to generate money?
1: I guess the logic for, for doing that is, is that in order to have a space where people could do this thing that nobody else was doing and no one in New York knew how to teach, we created a scene. We created an improv, a long-form improv scene. I don't know that stress was like the concern. The concern was, how do you create a scene? It's like if you came... To New York, and you made—I don't know—you made these weird doll things, and you wanted people to see them. You had to pay rent on the place, so you'd have to charge, like your your thing. And and a lot of what people did inside there was theirs, you know. Like if Todd Berry did stand up, it was his, you know. So you have to like keep the fort open. I don't know.
2: Mm. Veep is is a good segue into this. Um, did you have any idea that this would be as? prescient
1: no i thought uh i always thought veep would be super funny because of armando and uh julia and then for Have It. yeah it's just, you're very lucky if a show catches uh um, the american audience's attention and people are very passionate about it so very grateful mm. i know you've talked about
2: being uh grateful for the consistent
1: job all that too. You yeah. have
2: ping-ponged from so many films and shows <laughs> yes. for a long time. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the the idea of stability, was that something you were searching for or, or, and wanted?
1: I think every <laughs> actor wants that sort of consistency or freedom to like be involved in things that you know they're good or that they really like, and so that's the dream for everybody that starts out. Mm. and uh i've been fortunate to like make a career doing comedy i remember you
2: saying though that you had uh when you had your first child mm-hmm. um that year that he was born yeah. was a scary year
1: it was it was like a year that was not busy career wise i think i'd just gotten off a television show and then it was dog bites man right around there and then uh i didn't work what felt it wasn't truly a year but it felt like i was but the positive of that was like I was like around as my first kid was like developing, and it was really cool. Mm. So I like being a father because I think men these days, or the men I know, are more involved in their kids, certainly FaceTime than our gener- the generation before us. I think men were working a lot and didn't mm-hmm. assume that, oh, that's what a, the mom takes care of. And I think that's a neat thing. And that's why it's cool to be a dad. You didn't have a lot of one-on-one time with your parents. No. Like, that's why I'm a Bears fan. Because I think my dad would take me to Bears games. And that was like a neat one-on-one. And like comedy. He liked comedy movies. So that was like another thing.
2: Are you more active about trying to be there for your kid in a more one-on-one fashion?
1: Yeah, they get a daddy date. We do daddy dates once every year. Like, I took my daughter up to San Francisco to see a Bears game, her first solo trip with dad. (laughs) How did that go? It was amazing. It was amazing. (laughs) How old is she? She ate too much, and she threw up in the hotel room. I don't know how to think. I don't think she thinks that's amazing. No, it's not. That wasn't fun. But uh, she's seven. Okay. So it's a good age. Yeah. She had to wait. Five years, it's going to be. My boy Jude and I went to Vancouver together, and my son Emmett and I went to Chicago together, so Mm. we've rotated Trips. These kids have not gone to the age where they're
2: pain in the asses entirely, right?
1: No, they're still really lovely ages, and they're still uh, smitten a little bit with mom and dad. Mm. I'm sure it'll change.
2: Hopefully not. What has a father taught you about who you
1: are as a man in the world? That's a good question. Uh, being a man in the world, what has a father to me? The the thing. I was struck by is the infinite amount of decisions you make to bring an infant to adulthood, from putting a band-aid on their skin to getting them to brush their teeth to like hold their hand before they step in front of a car on the busy street. Like there's so many decisions that we humans and parents do to preserve just the life and then the then the mind. It's you see the value in like Oh, to bring somebody to adulthood there's so many decisions (laughs) that's what I learned it's like I have appreciation for that like my mom was like whatever don't touch the fire from don't touch the fire at one years old to whatever I can't even think of the things like they're always advising you on or encouraging you to drink some vitamin C or whatever Mm -hmm. that keeps you from getting a flu which whatever you know there's so many decisions so that was one thing that as I walk through the world as a man, I'm more aware of. Right. As a result of being a dad.
2: You have to make a lot of decisions.
1: So many decisions, yeah, like millions. Also,
2: it's not like you care about all those too. Sometimes
1: you don't. It's like, no, you're not getting French fries. You're just getting a ha- you're just getting a cheeseburger. Right. And you can have a lemonade, but you can't have a milkshake. Wow. There's those decisions. Really good compromise there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a uh, question. If you can step out of yourself for a moment, what is something you wish um, you, Matt Walsh, knew at 25 that you know now about uh, working, about, about making a career, something you've learned?
1: Uh, write it down. I would say write it down. Like right after the show, write it down. Like whatever you did up there, it's kind of like that stand-up mentality. I did a lot of nights where I was just like trying a character and then I would be done with it. And I would just try to remember folklorically like, oh, okay, I think this worked. But I wouldn't really go through it. I would just kind of throw it away and mm. maybe, maybe not do it. So I'd say write it down. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. You want to write it down? Yeah. Do you do that now? The lesson. Uh, a little bit. I'm a little better at writing things down. Yeah, mm. I
2: am. Uh, you've done so much in your career And you've done all kinds of things What do you want For yourself moving forward Work wise mm-hmm. Maybe not work wise Maybe that's less important as time goes on
1: Oh, I, 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 I suppose I hope to continue In the same vein of doing like Comedy that I can contribute to And help write and shape And perform Uh some more movies I like doing indie movies I love it maybe direct something Um, and then for uh, I don't know like I feel like my hope for myself is to be like why are you laughing at that to examine my life in such a profound way it's to I don't know it's a funny thing to think about like what is your 10 year plan where you want to be in 10 years
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Where do you want to be? For real. You can be quick. I, no oh, one's ever asked you that? No, no, no. For real? Of, of course. Of okay. course people
2: have asked me. Ten-year plan. Um, I will have made two feature films by then. Nice. I hope. I like that. Uh, I will be having my first kid. Mm-hmm. Not me, but the partner I choose. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope... I have some of the friends I have now and some new ones that I haven't met.
1: Good. Um I hope my parents are still alive. Yeah. Are you close? Yeah. Oh, do you get back to Chicago? Mhm. They're all over now. They're all over where? Well, two different states.
2: Chicago, San Francisco. It's so. okay.
1: Yeah. Well, but, I think that's those details and those specifics are like the things that like yeah, of course I want my kids to be healthy. I want my wife to be super, super happy still like like I want, uh, some travel maybe like I want mostly for my family. I just want like the good fortune to have that I have, like everything I could ask for. We have wonderful kids. They're going to do a good school, like all the simple, like the consistency of that is like if I could literally just keep most of what's happening now, I'm very lucky. (laughs) I really am. Like my mom's alive. My dad passed, but my mom's still with us. that would be neat for her to be around for a long time. Mm. Uh, so those that I guess that's the consistency. I guess I feel like in good fortune to continue in some version of, you know, the way things are all, you know, going.
2: I know you've laughed at the quote unquote profound questions. It is examined. a profound
1: question because you revealed that you were concerned about your parents well-being and that mm-hmm. you have yet to have a partner, but you you consider that part of your plan and you're emotional. So you addressed it seriously and earnestly. I'm doing it my best. I believe it. I don't doubt it. The last question. Go ahead. Do you think your parents are happy with what you've done? Yeah, I think so. My mom, who's still living, my father passed. My dad definitely always maybe a frustrated actor. Uh, well, probably. He always liked a microphone. He always liked to be a ham. Uh, called himself Clark Gable. And then uh, <laughs> my mom doesn't like a lot of what I do, but like... I think she likes that i'm doing well she does love them doing well but a lot of what i she's like oh matthew that's too foul or whatever too blue or something mm. or too r-rated or she likes mysteries like if if i could do a british mystery where i was an english detective in a small town sherlock sure or broad church she would be over the moon like that's her wheelhouse of entertainment
0: mm.
1: i think you found your next project i would do it yeah mm.
2: Uh, Matt Walsh, it has been a joy to have you. Thank you, Sam. It was fun. I hope you had a good time.
1: I did. Legit. (laughs) I had a really good interview.
2: Special thanks this week to Judy Merrick, Katrina Wan, and the good people at The Orchard. Under the Eiffel Tower, Matt Walsh's latest film is out in theaters around the country. It's also uh, now currently available on VOD. If you'd like to learn more about Matt, you can do so in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. Also on there is an archive of a bunch of episodes we've done with a lot of funny people including Paula Tompkins, Rory Scovel, Jenny Slate, Andy Daly, Reggie Watts, Kaperland, W. Kamau Bell, Ben Schwartz, Lauren Lapkus, and uh, many, many more. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our social media is by Crystal Farmer, our intern is Elliot Weindrob, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm San Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
0: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business